All right, well, that's not how we wanted to start today, but we're talking about joy, and we're going to look at how joy happens in any and all circumstances, and so we're going to let it happen even when the microphones don't work the way that they want. And so we're glad that you're with us today, whether you're online joining us, uh, whether you're at home not feeling well, and we pray that you will get feeling well soon, or whether you were able to brave it out today in a little bit of cold weather and amidst all the things that are happening, uh, we just truly are excited to be able to gather together in this place to make much of the name of Jesus. And so if you have your Bible, let's go ahead and open it up to Galatians chapter 5, just to kind of let you know a little bit about where we've been and where we're going. Uh, We have systematically been working through the book of Luke, and there's a reason why that we've been diligent to do that. Uh, One of them is, I think it is important for us as the body of Christ to know what the Bible says, and the only way that we're going to know what the Bible says is to be diligent and faithful and work through the Bible together, making sure that we have a clear, cohesive picture of who God is, what God is revealing to us us, what he's saying to us, uh, and making sure that we're not just pulling things out of context, that we're just not pulling out whatever topic might be trendy and cool right now, but to be faithful and diligent to make sure that we as the people of God have a very clear, cohesive understanding, there we go, praise God for that, uh, of how things work together in the Scriptures, because the Scriptures are not just one book compiled of a thousand different random things. It's one book that's cohesive, that's a narrative telling us the story of how things began all the way to the point that they're going to end with the consummation of God ruling and reigning and our hearts being redeemed and changed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason that we started in the book of Luke is this, our heart and desire as a church is that you and I would know Jesus, follow Jesus, and become like him. And the reason that we say that is we think at its bare bones, most simple form, that's what it means to be a disciple. People who know Jesus, they know him in a relational way. They've connected with him through saving faith. Their lives have been changed by the power of the gospel. And as such, they're following him, meaning they're seeking to be obedient, do as he did in the world, living the life that he's called them to. And we believe that ultimately the transformational process that will take place is that you and I are going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, meaning that we are going to become like him. And so one of the reasons that we started in the gospel of Luke, if we in indeed are going to be disciples of Jesus, we need to know who Jesus is, what Jesus said, and what Jesus expected from his followers. And I will tell you this, that after over 20 years in ministry, I am always a little bit amazed at the people who profess to be Christians, yet at the same time know very little about who Jesus is, what Jesus taught, what a life of Jesus is all about. And so that's very foundational for us to understand. And so as we were working through the Gospel of Luke together, we came to chapter chapter 8, where Jesus is teaching in this parable, and basically he talks about these types of hearts that are going to respond or not respond to the gospel. And basically through a teaching of soils and just trying to help us understand a visual picture of what that looked like, we came to the realization that those who truly believe the gospel, who receive it with sincere and genuine hearts, that that is going to uh, produce lasting fruit in the life of a person. Now the question for us is as believers, all right, so as a believer, I'm supposed to produce fruit, but what does that fruit look like? 
Now, historically, in the life of the church, it's always been easy for us to talk about actions. And, and not that fruit will not result in actions, but we'll say things like, all right, well, a believer will read their Bible, or a believer will attend church, or a believer will try to make a better impact in society. A believer won't do these things. They won't act in this way. And while all of those are important, here's the thing that we've come to realize in the life of a church over, over centuries. You can do all of those things, yet not truly be born again. And so when we're talking about spiritual fruit, we want to go just beyond the action steps, and we want to look inward. And so the Bible is going to tell us that there are some qualities, some characteristics, some things that are going to be prevalent in the life of a believer who's truly been saved, truly been born again, and is now walking in step with the Spirit. And we find a list of these in Galatians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul has been contrasting what a life living in the flesh, according to the sinful man and the way of the world looks like, versus the man who is now walking with the Spirit. And so as we've been talking about bearing fruit, we want to make sure that we're being clear to our church, here's what this fruit is going to look like, and really our emphasis in 2022 here at First More is that we want to be a people who bear fruit. We want to be a people who give clear evidence that we have received, believed, and are walking in the truth and the light of the gospel. And we're going to be able to tell that in one another by whether there is evidence of spiritual fruit or not. And so we began last week looking at these fruits. So let's remind ourselves of what they are or what it is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And so as we look at this list of the fruit of the Spirit, here's what we're seeing. These are the virtues. These are the qualities. These are the inward characteristics that will manifest themselves outwardly in the life of a believer who is a disciple of Jesus, who is following Him and becoming like Him. Now, last week we looked at the first one. We looked at love, and we spent a lot of time in 1 John as we looked at the fact that love is more than a feeling, that love is a, an act of will by which because we have experienced the love of God in our lives, because we've tasted and seen what love looks like displayed in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we now are called to walk in love, and this love is going to tell the story of whether we truly know God or not. And so this love is vertical, meaning that because God loved loved us, we in turn are going to love Him. But even more so, John focuses on the fact that if we truly understand what love is, it is going to shape and impact the way that we love other people. And so we saw that love was going to be evidenced in the things that it does for one another. It's going to be evidenced in what it's willing to sacrifice and what it's willing to give up. And we saw this very cohesive, beautiful, but difficult picture in the Bible of what true love looks like in the life of a believer. Now, what we said last week also is that love was really the motivating uh, fruit behind the rest of the fruit. And what that means is if we truly understand God's love and are walking in His love for other people, then these other fruit will be evidenced in our life. But we're going to walk through them as well. And today what we're going to look at is the fruit of the Spirit, which is joy. Now, before we do that, let's just bow our heads for a moment and let's just come before the Lord asking Him to open our hearts, to open our minds, to help us to understand uh, what He's revealing to us. 
as I've been reading through Psalm 119 myself and just doing kind of a verse-by-verse study of it in my personal time, one of the things that I'm reminded of is not only does that psalm tell us how important the Bible is, but the psalmist is so dependent upon the Lord to help him see and to help him understand. And so here's what you and I need. Not only do we need the Word of God to be rightly presented to us today, and I pray that God would use me to do that, but we need spiritual eyes, ears, hearts being opened by the Lord to be able to take this truth and allow it to shape us. And so right there where you're at in your own words, let me encourage you just to cry out to the Lord and say, God, would you help me to understand today what joy is, what joy looks like, and how it needs to be evident in my life. Father, we come before you today hungry for the truth of your word. Father, we know that your word is sweeter than honey to our taste. Father, we know that it's sustenance, that it's food for our spiritual lives and our soul. We know that Jesus said himself that man does not live by bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And so today as we're looking at this fruit of joy, we pray that you would help us to have a deep understanding of what it is, how it manifests itself in our life, and that we as the people of God would be known by others around us to have true, abiding, genuine joy. Father, forgive us for the times that we as the church look anything but joyful. Father, forgive us for the times that people know us more by our anger and frustration and hostility and even, dare we say, hatred at times of things and people than we do for that sense of joy that you produce. And so, Father, would you have your way in us? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At the end of the day, every one of us want to be happy. I mean, the reality is that trillions of dollars are spent around the world every year for you and I to try to find a way to be happy. Now, what's interesting about that is while we live in a time and place where we have more accessibility to things, more uh, material possessions, more ability to go on trips, more entertainment that is at our fingertips, here's what I think we find more and more in our world is that we truly are not a happy people. Matter of fact, I think if you and I were to be honest, if we were trying to describe the the feeling of our culture today, it would maybe be frustration, it would be anger, it would be hostile, it would be discontent. There is a reason why depression and anxiety, and I'm not just talking about from a medical perspective, but I'm just talking about in the ebbs and flows of normal human life and activity are so readily talked about and so clearly seen. If you spend some time on Facebook, one of the things, or any other social media, one of the things that you're going to find is that people are trying to, one, constantly show how they're not happy, what's wrong in the world, or secondly, trying to convince us that they are happy. And the fact that you're trying to convince someone that you are probably tells me that you're not because happy people don't normally need to prove it to somebody else. And so all of this is being said that that while we all want to be happy and while this nation was founded upon the principle of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, truly we know very few people who we would say, yeah, that's a happy person. Yeah, that's a joyful person. Yeah, that's a person who has a lot of excitement and exuberance and true, genuine joy in their life. Now, one of the things that we need to know as we look into this is that happiness and joy are not the same thing. 
Matter of fact, when we talk about happiness, one of the things that we need to understand is that happiness at its core is normally founded upon circumstances, meaning that when life is going the way that I want, when life seems to be appealing and appeasing to me, then I'm going to be happy. But the moment you take away from me something I don't want, well, then I'm not going to be happy any longer. If you've ever spent time around a child, here's what you know, that you want to make them happy, let them have what they want. But the moment that you remove that thing, whatever it might be, happiness is going to be the last thing that they experience. Instead, you're going to see anger, you're going to see sorrow, you're going to see crying that is going to be exhibited in their life. Right now with a little three-year-old at our house, we are going through that season and stage where our emotions are a little bit all over the place. And as long as she's getting what she wants, guess what? She's just as happy as can be. The moment we say, no, you can't have candy for breakfast, guess what? It results in some kind of breakdown. Eventually, before long, when she continues to cry, we'll look at her and say, well, go to your room. And here's what she says every time she gets in trouble as she's crying, I'll be happy, I'll be happy. And I'm like, you're not happy. That's why we're sending you to your room. We wish you were happy, but you're not. And the reality is that few of us ever grow beyond that type of thinking and that way of feeling, that that we tend to get a little bit older in our physical shape and and maybe our understanding of the world, but many of us are just like my little three-year-old daughter, that the moment things don't go our way, we are anything but happy. And so happiness really is based upon circumstances, while the whole idea of joy, biblically speaking, goes well beyond our circumstances, and strangely enough, is a quality that we can have regardless of what's going on around us. Now, the Bible is going to say a lot about joy. Matter of fact, let me just give you a few simple references. Jesus promised his disciples in John chapter 16 that their sorrow or their mourning was going to be replaced by joy. When the apostle Paul described the kingdom of God, he describes it in Romans chapter 14 as one of righteousness, peace, and joy. Peter referred to the life of salvation uh, in the life of a believer in 1 Peter chapter 1 as one of inexpressible joy. You can take a look at what James says in James 1-2 where he says, Count it all joy, dear brothers, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith develops perseverance or endurance. And so James would go so far as to say, listen, you should be joyful even when times are difficult, even when you're going through trials and tribulations, because God is at work in the midst of that. Now, as interestingly enough, if you do a bit of a word study, what you're going to find is that the noun form of the word joy is used 59 times in the New Testament, and the verb form of it, rejoice, is used another 74 times. Now, what does that tell us? The New Testament writers thought that joy should be something that was very present in the life of the believer who's placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But joy is not just a New Testament virtue. If you were to go to Psalm chapter 16, which is one of my most favorite psalms in the Bible, you see that David is going to say, in your presence is fullness of or abundant joy. At your right hand are treasures forevermore. And so David, one who had experienced all of the luxuries of life, said this, my joy is not found in any of these things, but ultimately my joy is rooted in the presence of the Lord. We would look at Psalm 16 as a messianic psalm, meaning there was a part of him that was looking ahead to that coming Messiah, that coming one, and just says, God, Lord Jesus, in your presence is where my joy is ultimately to be found. 
Nehemiah would write in chapter 8 and say, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And you don't have to spend much time at all in the book of Psalms before you see a constant theme of gladness and joy that has begun to develop. Now, why do I say that? Because if the Bible says that joy is that important, and if one of the evidences of the fruit of the Spirit in our life that we're walking with the Spirit is joy, then guess what that means? You and I need to be joyful. Now, Honestly enough, joy is not just something that you and I create, right? So it's not just like I'm going to sit there and I'm going to get myself joyful. Joy is something that is going to be produced in your life as you're faithful and obedient to the Word of God and ultimately as you are surrendered to the Spirit of God. And if you're going to write things down today, I would encourage you to write that down because that needs to be a focal point of what we're looking at today. That joy is going to be evident and produced in your life when first you are obedient to the Word of God. There will be no joy in your life as long as you choose to live contrary to what God says is best and right for you. And just on its simplest form, for many of us today, the reason that there has been a long, sustainable track record of a lack of joy in our lives is because we have chosen to live much of it contrary to what God's Word says. And as long as you're willing to go against the grain of what God says, don't you ever expect there to be lasting joy in your heart and life. But secondly, it's produced when you walk in accordance with the Spirit of God. And so God has designed it in our spiritual lives that if we will be true to His Spirit, listening to what it's saying to us and following its lead and direction and walking in step with what the Word of God says, we can expect there to be some evidence of joy being produced. Now, there's not just one verse or one chapter in the Bible that I would point you to that just speaks about joy, while there might be a few. But if I were to tell you, where am I going to get a deep sense of understanding of what joy looks like in the Bible? Here's where I would turn you to, is the book of Philippians. And so if you will, let me invite you to open your Bible today to the book of Philippians. And we're going to spend a little bit of time in this book trying to unfold and get an understanding of how joy is going to be present in our lives and what joy looks like. Now, interestingly enough, in four short chapters, the Apostle Paul is going to reference the word joy in some form 13 times. So you think about that, a little over three times a chapter it's going to average out that the Apostle Paul wants to drive home this idea that joy ought to be present. Interestingly enough, and this is why I love the book of Philippians, in 109 verses, I believe it is, in, in the book of Philippians, 51 times Paul is going to reference Christ. And so if you were to say to me, well, how would you sum up the book of Philippians? I would say, I think the theme is divine joy in Jesus Christ. I mean, I think one of the things that Paul is trying to drive home to the believer, understanding that regardless of what happens in life, when you are rooted in Christ Jesus and you know Him and you're following Him and He's at work, guess what? Joy is going to be a reality for you. Now, what makes this so interesting is the circumstances by which Paul is writing this letter. It is one of what we would refer to as his prison epistles, where he is sitting chained to a guard because he has been faithful to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's landed him in prison. And yet, as he sits imprisoned, he has the nerve, the gumption to write and talk about joy. Now, that's fascinating to me. Because I don't know about you, if I've been faithful to God and that results in imprisonment for me, that alone is probably enough to steal my joy, right? 
That alone is probably enough to get me not singing hymns and psalms of praise, but rather singing something along the lines of nobody knows the troubles I've seen, nobody knows my sorrows, right? It's going to be more of a lamenting time for me, more of a a sorrowful time, yet Paul somehow has managed to say, yes, I'm in prison from doing nothing but being faithful, but guess what? My life is full of joy and yours should be too. And so as I read through this book, and and believe me, I wish we had time. We actually preached through it not long after I became the pastor here, uh, but but I would love just to spend more time just, uh, you know, expositing what some of these these truths about joy are. But I really want to just kind of break it down in some ways that you and I, I think, can begin to see joy in our life develop if we follow what Paul is saying here. And so the first thing, if you're writing them down, I want you to write this down. Joy comes from knowing that God is at work. Now, on some level, all of us would say, well, yeah, sure, God's at work. We believe and teach that there is the sovereign God who is at work in all things, and He's working all things out for the glory of His name and for the good of those that love Him. And I think all of us would say in a moment, in a season, yeah, I'm just going to trust that God's working in that. But, but I want us to move beyond cliche and beyond just a shallow theology that if we're not careful, we develop. And I want us to really think, do you believe that in anything and in everything, in every moment and stage of your life and in this world, that God is at work in the midst of it? Because if you have that kind of faith, and if you have that kind of trust, and if you truly believe in this sovereign God who is not just uh, trying to to juke and, and, and to do all of the things that is going on, but is willing it to be, here's what you know. You can have joy in the midst of whatever comes your way. Now, I say that to say, look at what Paul begins his letter by saying, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying, look at this, with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, confident of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. So here he sits thinking about this group of believers that he loves, that he's ministered to, that he's had a deep affection for, and as he's sitting in prison, his heart is overflowing with joy. Why? Because he is confident that the same God who began a work in them is the same God that's going to bring it to completion. Let me tell you what that means for me and you. The same God that began his good work in your life and in my life today is going to see it through to the very end. It's not a question, it's not a doubt, it's not a maybe, God, are you going to be there? But he gives us his great and precious promises that says, regardless of what you're walking through today, know this, I am at work, and the work that I began, I am going to finish, and I am going to see to the very end. Now, life is filled with moments of things that we begin and we don't start, or, or finish, excuse me. Chances are there is a project in your home that you began and you just still haven't got it done yet. 
Chances are, maybe there was a time in your life that you began to write a book or began to do something and you just kind of put it on hold and didn't see it to the end. And the reality is that life is filled with people that we run into that say they're going to start something and even start, but yet we don't see them complete it. And so because of that, it causes us to question at times, well, is this really going to happen? Is this really going to come through? But Paul was confident enough in God to say this, I know he began it. I know he's going to complete it. And because of that, I have total joy because I'm trusting that God is at work. And so as he sits here in prison, he doesn't know the outcome. As we read the letter, he thinks he's going to be released. He thinks he's going to be let free, but he's not for certain. He doesn't know that's how it's going to end, but he's not concerned one bit about the end. Why? Because he knows however it ends, God has been faithful. God's going to see him through and the end is the way that it needs to end. Now, how does that apply to you and me? Oftentimes, we don't have joy because we're so afraid of the future. Oftentimes, we don't have joy because the present is so unsettled, and maybe what we're going through right now just has so many questions, and we're like, well, I just don't know what's going to happen in the midst of this, but let us just be confident in this church that the God who began to work in your life is not going to leave you hanging, but He's going to see it through, and whatever He does is going to be right and good by you. And so let me tell you what that means. It means that you and I can have joy in the midst of it. So here's one of the first things I want to tell you. You want to have joy, get your eyes off of you and get them on the Lord. You want to have joy, get your eyes off your circumstances, get them on the Lord. You want to have joy, just quit thinking about your problems and quit allowing your momentary circumstances to determine how you're going to respond and say, God, I trust you today because here's the truth. Joy is directly related to faith and God's work of grace. Interestingly enough, if you do a word study, what you're going to find is that the word grace and the word joy share the same root word in the Greek. And so I think that's telling us that they're closely related. And here's what I've come to learn in my life. The more people understand the depths of God's grace, the more joy it produces in their life. The more you understand how God has lavished grace and good things upon you undeservedly, the more joy you're going to have. Why? Because rather than you walking around thinking about what you deserve or don't deserve, what's fair or not fair, you see all of your life through the lens of this. Every good thing I have comes from the Lord, and I didn't deserve one of them. You know, kids love to say this. That's not fair. My kids don't say that much in my house anymore because every time they bring it up, they know they're going to get this response. Oh, you want fair? Let's do fair. You want to go back to the times that your mom and I should have grounded you a whole lot longer than we did, but we showed you mercy? That wasn't fair. You want to go back and enact that punishment again? Is it fair that your mom and I give you lots of good things that you don't deserve, that we just choose to be a blessing to you and give you things? Would you like for me to take those things away from you if you really want fair? And by this time, they're rolling their eyes like, no, Dad, we don't want fair. But it's a moment to say, listen, we only want fair when we think it's going to be to our benefit and to our advantage. What we really want day in and day out is mercy and grace. And God has lavished that on us. And guess what? The deeper you understand God's level of grace in your life, the more joy you're going to have. 
The more you understand that every gift that you have, ability you have, talent you have, whatever it might be, is a gift of God's complete and total grace to you, guess what? The more joy it's going to produce because you understand that it's not about fair or what you get, that life in general is all about God's grace towards you. And in that, you and I rejoice. Now, there's a second thing that I want us to see. Look at verse 12. So again, he's, he's sitting there chained to a guard. And he says, no, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord for my imprisonment and dare even say more to speak the word fearlessly to be sure some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed to the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely thinking that they will cause me, to, cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So, so, so what's the cause for Paul's joy in this moment? He says, you know what? Here's what's happened. Even though I'm in prison and chained to a guard, it's actually worked out better. Why? Because the gospel is being advanced. The truth of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed, and there's an audience now that's hearing it that probably wouldn't have heard it otherwise. Now, you can only imagine what it would have been like to be one of those guards that's changed to the Apostle Paul and whatever his shift may be, if it's an eight-hour shift, for eight hours, Paul had an audience that couldn't leave that was chained to him, who he had the opportunity to tell his story to about how the gospel had radically changed his life. And Paul says, you know what? I would have never been able to do this otherwise. Matter of fact, you want to know something else good that's come from it? It's because I've continued to be faithful in the midst of my, my trials. Other people now are becoming more bold, and now they're preaching the gospel more fearlessly. And so where you and I would typically be upset and crying and, and ashamed and upset that the Lord would allow us to go through such a thing, Paul says, man, this is great. Guess what? It's actually worked out better. And this is all that I want, that the gospel be proclaimed in the world. Matter of fact, he goes on to be so bold as to say that whether by my life or my death, now think about that for a moment, because here's the reality. All of us in this, life, or in this room would probably say, yeah, I want God to use me. Now, what we tend to think about in that is that God is going to give us some great big platform, and He's going to give us a lot of blessing, and He's going to give us a great story to be able to tell that maybe we find ourselves on the news or up in front of a lot of people, and we get to share this over and over again. And Paul says, I, I don't care how the Lord chooses to use me, whether by my life or by my death, I just care that the gospel be proclaimed. Now, how many of us are willing to sign up for that? How many of us are willing to look at the Lord and say, God, even if it means it leads me to the point of my death, I'm okay with it because above all, here's my heart, I want you to be proclaimed 
to dying people. Now that's a different scope, right? And it's a whole different scope to do it with joy. Some of you will have something bad happen to you that God is going to use for His glory and your good, but you're going to have to endure it. And the question will be, am I okay with that? And will I be joyful in the midst of it as long as Christ is proclaimed in it? Because everybody will get in line if God wants to bless us in proclaiming the gospel. Few are willing to get in the line if it means hard work. Few are willing to get in line if it means perseverance, endurance, difficulty. Some of us might have some tragedy happen in our life that the Lord is going to use in your life that the gospel might be proclaimed. And are you as joyful and willing in that moment as it is if God was going to give you a big platform in front of a lot of people with a large audience and your name got to be in lights while you did it? And so joy comes when you and I are committed to seeing the gospel advanced. Joy happens in the life of the church when we want to see other people saved. And guess what has to happen? Our eyes have to get off of us and they got to be on the Lord, and they got to be on other people. Now, you're going to see a theme develop as we look at these, and this is one of the things that I want to make sure that you understand. The reason that many of us do not have joy is because we are way too inward-focused. We would say it like this, you're too selfish and self-absorbed. Now, it sounds nicer to say inward-focused, but let's just call it what it is, Right? That we spend so much time looking inward and thinking about ourselves and thinking about our comfort and thinking about what we like and what we want. The reason there's far little joy in your life is you spend way too much time thinking about you. And there's no joy to be found there. As long as you just keep looking inward and thinking about yourself, you were created for more than that. You were created for something bigger than that. And let me just tell you this, if you are your God, what a pathetic little God that is. Because you were created for something bigger. And one of the reasons that there's just this gap in joy in your life is you spend way too much time inside of you and you need to start looking outward. Here's the third thing that I want you to see. And it comes in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship with the Spirit... If any affection and mercy make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should not look out only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others." Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." For this reason, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
So Paul says, I want to hear that there's unity, that there's love, that there's affection, that there's a humility that exists among each of you, that you're not just looking out for your own interests and your own desires and your own wants, but instead you're considering others more important than yourselves. And if you want to know what that looks like, look no further than our Lord Jesus Christ, who although He was the eternal, infinite God, worthy of all worship and praise and devotion, chose to take upon human form and humble himself and subjected himself to everything that every man that ever walked on the planet did. And if you think that's not bad enough, he did it for this reason and this reason alone, that he might go to the cross and give himself for you. But therefore, God has given him a name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The uh, author of Hebrews will later say, therefore, since you're surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses, let us lay aside every hindrance and the weight that so easily entangles us and let us look unto Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What does that mean? It means that the Lord Jesus Christ subjected himself to humanity, to death, to take upon him the punishment for the sins of the world, and he did it with joy. Why? Because he kept his eyes focused on the end, the prize by which God was going to reward him for his faithfulness and his willingness to live a life pleasing to him. Here's one of the things that you and I need to grasp. If we're going to be full of joy, it will not come by us having more people cater to us, but will become from our willingness to serve other people. You want to have more joy in your marriage? Quit expecting your spouse to serve you and start serving them. Now that sounds backwards, but you'll find it to be true. You want to find more joy in the gathering of the body? Quit expecting it to go the way you want and start giving of yourself to other people. Sounds backwards, but you'll find that to be true. You want to have more joy in your neighborhood? Quit complaining about your neighbors and the fact that their dog left a present in your front yard and go serve them. If you're wondering what that present is, ask one of the kids, they'll explain it to you. I mean, the reality is our backwards way of thinking that says, do for me, do for me, say what I want to hear has caused us to have a lack of joy because the Bible makes it clear over and over again that true joy is found when we humble ourselves, serve other people and give of ourselves to others. Now, we know this to be true. Here's why. Because even though we have moments in our life where we dread going and doing something for someone, it seems like whenever we're done, we're always glad that we did it. You ever been there? You know, you're like, ah, I don't want to go do this. I don't want to go there. But yet you go and you serve and you give of yourself. And somehow when it's all over, you're like, well, that was fun. And when you say fun, you don't mean that you necessarily want to do it like again all the time. But what you meant was, is there's this sense of joy that you have because if you gave of yourself to to help and do something for someone else. And so joy is going to be found when we walk in humility, unity with others by serving one another. Now go to Philippians chapter 3, maybe one of my most favorite chapters in the Bible. And what I find interestingly, uh, interesting about chapter 3 is that it's sandwiched between two things. And so at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. So he's given them a command. 
Now rejoice in the Lord, all right? Find joy in the Lord. Go to chapter 4, verse 4 with me. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And so, so we got this command twice, the second time even a little bit more emphatic than the first time. So he says, rejoice in the Lord. The second time he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And just to make sure you didn't hear me the previous times, I'm going to say it again, rejoice. Now that causes me to stop and say, okay, what, what's happened in the middle between these two that causes me to think, all right, why the emphasis? Why has he said this twice that we need to do this? And, and sandwiched in between it in chapter 3, again, is this beautiful passage where the Apostle Paul basically says, everything that I used to brag and boast about that were things that I had accomplished in my life, I'm wadding them up, I'm discarding them in the trash heap as dung. That's the literal word that he uses. Strong language, Right? I mean, when you think about saying, man, that, that, that's, there's some other words that we would use in our modern English vocabulary, so I want to be careful that I don't throw some of those out of there and, and shock some of you to death, although don't act like you don't use them from time to time. But nonetheless, that, that we are like, man, that, that, that's, that's trash, right? That's poop, that's dung, like, that, that's less, like very degrading. And that's what he says about everything that he's accomplished on his own in his life. And so why does he consider them rubbish, trash, dung. He says this in verse 7, but everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be lost because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, not to, to belabor this because we've talked about it before, but that word know there is more than just some type of intellectual, informational knowledge. It is an intimate, experiential knowledge that he's referring to. It's, a, it's an intimate relationship. Matter of fact, if you were to take it back into the Hebrew and the Old Testament, you would get the word yada, and that word is the word used for intimate uh, knowing. An example would be David knew Bathsheba and she bore a child. So, so, so we get that, right? That, that's how intimate this word is. And this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. Everything that I used to value, I now discard as trash compared to what? Truly knowing Jesus Christ. He goes on to talk about how he wants to know him and experience him in his sufferings and, and even be like him in his death. And then he jumps on down to verse 12 and says this, not that I have already reached the goal, or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have also been taken hold of by Jesus Christ. Now this is strong right here. And I think the reason that Paul is telling them multiple times, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord always, I'll say it again, rejoice, is the same reason that back in Psalm 1611, David says, in your presence is fullness of joy, at your right hand are treasures forevermore. They knew the secret to joy and contentment was only going to be found in an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus did not die just to give you things. He died to give you himself. Now let's make that clear. Regardless of what kind of teaching you hear in other places, God, Jesus did not die so you can be prettier. Jesus did not die so you could have more money. 
Jesus did not die so you could have a better house or a better standard of living. Jesus died so he could, he could give you the greatest thing, which was himself, that you might know him. And the more you grasp that, the more joy you're going to have. Paul goes on to talk about contentment in this book. He talks about how he's learned to be content in whatever situation that he's in. And why is that? He says, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. I've learned the secret to life, and it's not found in any of this. It's found in Christ. And I can do everything as long as He's at work in me, giving me strength. And so joy is going to be found when we know Jesus Christ and are walking with Him. Now, I want us to begin to think. All of these things have this in common. They're rooted in Jesus, and they're causing us to look outside of ourselves. And I want you to think about how much time you spend thinking about you, your wants, your desires, versus how much time you spent thinking about God, what do you want for my life? Because that right there might be the gap. That right there might be the clear indicator of why you either have joy or you don't. Sadly enough, of the virtues that the Bible has called us to have, the church is known for so little, such little bits of it, right? So, so we're called to be loving. And we talked last week that loving isn't just that we say everything's okay or we just give people what they want. That's not what love is in the Bible. But, but to many, the church would not be known in the world as loving. That just would not be a characteristic that people use to describe it. I would tell you this, that if the second of the fruit of the Spirit are joy, the majority of churches out there and Christian people are not known for being people of joy. Would your neighbors consider you to be joyful? When you walk into a room, and I'm not saying you have to be some big bubbly personality that you know, just takes over the room, because some of us in there, that's just not our demeanor, it's not how we're wired. And so I'm not saying you have to put on some fake face and just smiling and happy, because you know what, people will see right through that as well. But when they talk to you and sense in your life, do they see true evidence of joy being there? Now, now let me tell you three ways I think that you can kind of ask yourself, help yourself understand, evaluate if you truly are joyful. Here's the first one. Are you content? Are you content? I mean, do you look at your life, and by and large, it doesn't mean to say that you don't want to be better educated, that you might not want a promotion at work. I mean, there's nothing wrong with ambition and desire and wanting to better yourself, but just meaning wherever you're at in life, are you content? You know, one of the things that I've always tried to ask myself in ministry is, am I content doing the work that God's called me to do? Meaning, I don't want to be looking ahead and try, trying to have some kind of ministry agenda for my life, that by this age I want to be here. And here's one of the truths that I would tell you. I believe that I am right where God wants me to be, and part of that leads to my contentment, but I can also tell you this, I could have been content continuing to be the pastor of First Baptist Fort Cobb. Why? Because I just wanted to be faithful. 
I mean, one of the things that I've desired to do my entire ministry is, Lord, I want to be sensitive to your spirit. I want to do what you call me to do. And I just want to be faithful wherever I'm at. And so this has just kind of been the mode of my life. I've always just been content to be where I am, trusting that, God, if you want to move me somewhere at the right moment, at the right season in my life, you're going to move me. I say this humbly, and not to say that anyone who's done things differently is wrong, but I've never sent a resume to a church. I just, I just don't care. I don't care what church is open. I don't care what job opportunity might be out there. I've just always been diligent to say, Lord, this is where you have me. I'm going to be faithful and content here. And if there's a season that you want to move me, then you're going to make that happen. And, and he's always been faithful to do that when it was right in my heart and life. Why, why do I say that? It's not to say that it's wrong for you to want to better to improve. But here's the question. Why do you want that? Is it because you're not content where you are? Because there's something to be said about content, and I do believe this, that joy and contentment go hand in hand with one another. If you learn to be content, you're going to have joy in your heart and life. And when you're joyful, you're going to be content. Here's the second thing. How do I respond to adversity? When things don't go my way, how do I respond? Do I throw a fit? Do I say things like, it always happens to me? Do I get angry? How is my mode when I get news that I don't want to hear and experience difficulty in life? Because how you respond to that's going to tell you whether you're joyful or not. Now, now here's the thing, all right? Now, I want to be clear about this. Let's say you go to the doctor this week and you find out you have cancer. I don't expect you to throw a party for that. That would be silly, Okay. It doesn't mean that when something bad happens or bad news comes your way that you're like, yes, I couldn't wait for that. that that's just silly. And we would not look at you like, well, that's a great quality to have. We would look at you like, that's, there's something wrong with you, right? That, those, that's not what I'm saying. But once you get that news and realize, okay, this is what it is and this is where I'm at, are you able to have joy in the midst of it or is your life wrecked forever because of it? That tells you a lot about whether you have joy or not. Here's the third one. How do you respond in obedience to the Lord? Now, the first question is, do, are you obedient, right? So, so there's one thing. And if you're not obedient, then don't expect joy to come. But you know what? There's another way that you can be obedient that doesn't produce joy. It's the way my kids act sometimes when they have to take out the trash. Grab it and tie it up real tight drag it behind them with everything leaking out and then take it out to the trash can and chunk it in there. I don't look at them and say, thank you for that. I look at them like, come on now, it's just the trash, right? So you can be obedient and not be joyful. Now, I would tell you this, their willingness to take the trash out that way is far better than them saying, no, I'm not going to do it, because then we'd have some real issue, right? So, so that's disobedience. And then there's a type of obedience that's just this begrudging submission that says, God, I'm going to do it, but I'm not going to like it. Here's the third type of obedience. We obey with joy. God, I'm delighted to do whatever you want me to do. God, I don't understand it, and, I, and I'm asking you to give me some clarity on it, but nonetheless, you're at work, I trust you in it, and I'm going to be joyful in my obedience. Because how, what kind of obedience you have or lack of is going to tell you a whole lot about your attitude and if joy is there. What's the bottom line? Joy is going to be an overflow. 
of time spent in the Word, time spent knowing Jesus Christ, trusting and believing honestly without cliche that God is at work, and being willing to walk in whatever season He has for you because he know, you know that ultimately He will be glorified and good will come for you as you do it. I want you to bow your heads with me for a moment. Are you joyful? If you were to be graded on the verse, rejoice in the Lord always, I'll say it again, rejoice, would it be a pass or fail? Would it be an A, yes, I respond in joy, or would it be, yeah, sometimes, but more times than not? And this is important. Because this is an indicator of our walking in the Spirit of God. It's an indicator to our faithfulness to the Word of God. And here's what I know, right? Sometimes our reactions instantly are not joyful, but, but do you pause and give thought and then stop and say, God, okay, I trust that you're at work and you move forward in joy. That, that tells you something. Or are you chronically complaining and angry and upset and nothing is ever okay and nothing is ever right and you're constantly, woe is me. And, and I would just tell you this, that in any and all of those circumstances, here's what it's going to move itself back to. A lack of confidence in God and way too much focus on you. And so just as I desire for Firstmore to be truly known as a church that loves, I pray that we would be known as a church full of joy. I, feel, I pray that it would be evident in the way we interact with one another, that it would be evident in our times of worship, that it would be evident in our responses to the Word, that it would be evident in the way that we approach the people of our community, that they would look at us and see the same joy that Jesus had, the same joy that Paul had, and every other faithful believer throughout history, that we truly are people who are surrendered to the Spirit of God. So this morning's invitation for a lot of us probably looks like repentance. God, I'm sorry I'm not joyful. And hopefully this morning there was some help in helping you diagnose why you're not joyful. And just some time kneeling before the Lord and saying, God, all right, I know I'm not joyful. Will you help me to dissect and diagnose the why that's down there in my heart? Because I know this isn't how Jesus was and I know this isn't what you want for me. So God, help me to understand why. I think it's a lot of asking, God, will you increase my joy in you? I think for some of us, it's discipline related that it involves us spending more time in God's word and striving to be more faithful to him. And when I say spending time in God's word, not just cherry picking the parts that you like or trying to prove your points, but the, just allowing God to speak and breathe and move in your life and increase your joy in him. So we're going to pray, and as you know, the opportunity to respond is up front. If you want to come kneel or pray with the people that are here, it's out back. If you want someone to sit and have a lengthy conversation with, it's a taking a connect card and filling it out and, and letting us know what you need so that we can connect with you. 
But here's what I want you to know, that joy will never happen in your life until you know Jesus. And that's square one. And our heart today would be that if you don't know Jesus, that that would begin, that your joy may be complete. Father, we love you. Have your way in us today. May we be a people of joy. Clearly, evidently, that we've been with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.